happening now. We'd like to welcome our viewers from around the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room for November 22nd, 2016, our Thanksgiving holiday show for those in the United States celebrating Thanksgiving. My name is Wes Fryer, joining from Oklahoma City, where it was a balmy 76 degrees Fahrenheit today. And as always... I should say as always, but he has been on the road a lot. He is a road warrior. He is Jason Neifer, and tonight he's in Missoula, Montana. How are you, Jason? I'm doing well, Wes, and I'm joining you from less balmy uh, 40 degrees, although for Montana in November, just before Thanksgiving, I've expected to be 20 to 30 degrees less. So clearly evidence that at least this year the winter will be quite mild. So good times. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, gosh, we have a heck of a, of a show of notes. There is, there is no way that we're going to be getting through these. But, uh, I was telling my wife last night and reflecting, um, I really am enjoying having this show. It is causing me to read the news with greater depth. And I feel like, you know, it's not like I'm in a graduate course, but you know, when you're taking a class, you're, you're into reading and you're having to do stuff. And in a very constructive and positive way, the show has done that. So if you are new to the show or whether you're a veteran of the show, uh, you can find all of our links at edtechsr.com slash links. Our modus operandi is generally to take the news from the past week or somewhat recent news and talk about that through an educational lens. And uh, we will share some geeks of the week in between. Jason, I'll have to ask you this. I'm just going to throw, throw this one at you since it's Thanksgiving. Uh, share with, with us one of your favorite Thanksgiving memories of, of all time that stands out. And I'll do the uh, same. It's a great question. Um, I come from a big family. My mom is the oldest of 11 uh, uh, kids. And my best Thanksgiving memories as a kid was, was uh, Thanksgiving with my, um, with my, uh, with my grandparents. And uh, because my grandmother, uh, who is now no longer with us, you know, always cooked for a crowd, she would, you know, it, it inevitably lots of food would have to be made. And I can remember two or three instances when I was a kid where we hosted Thanksgiving in my parents' house and had, you know, varieties of my aunts and uncles and cousins uh, show up. And one year my grandmother made a, like a big hefty bag, like the, like the, the big 50 gallon black hefty bags. She came in over shoulder full of dinner rolls. She'd been baking for like three straight days and just had, Kachung, this massive uh, a trove of, of, of dinner rolls. And it, it always reminds me of, you know, when my grandmother cooked for the family, it was always huge. And in fact, the, the stuff, one of the stuffing recipes I make, um, and I'm in charge of stuffing for our family feast, um, is, is kind of in her honor because it includes some of the ingredients like uh, sausage that she would have put in her um, in, in her stuffing. So, uh, uh, great memories of, of big family Thanksgivings. What about us? Well, my, uh, my, my folks were in the air force, my dad and our whole family, you're kind of not just one person in the air force. So we moved around a lot growing up and, um, moved to Manhattan, Kansas in probably like 80 or 81. Uh, and, um, so that's kind of where I, where I claim, the, my my home as an Air Force brat and and just you know being in my parents' house and just um, uh, the big big dining room table. My mother grew up in Louisiana and the story of our dining room table is it used to be on a steamboat and it was this really long this this uh, <laughs> table that somehow could just be you know extended longer and longer and longer. Uh, and so anyway, gathered around that table uh, and cranberry sauce and there's a very special dish which is a cut glass dish which we now have and we'll be eating cranberry sauce out of. And um, this uh, year, my parents have decided that they're ready to move to, move to the retirement home, uh, which is not just like a nursing home or something. It's, it's independent living, and, and I'm, we're excited for it right. to have a chance to do that. But anyway, uh, yeah, lots of good memories of Thanksgivings there. And, uh, it's, you know, the, the, the seasons move on, the traditions change, but sometimes things are, are preserved. So certainly those flavors and those those things that you just you couldn't say you're having Thanksgiving if you didn't have it. And for me, it's it's got to be cranberry sauce in that dish. Absolutely. So where would you like to take us tonight? We've got a, a lot of different directions we can, we can go. Yeah, I guess maybe for me, the, the top story that's been consuming my uh, both social media feeds and also my general obsession is that circling back around to the 2016 presidential election, 
Um, obviously, the, the game now is to analyze what happened. And to be clear, it's not what happened to lead to you know the rise of Trump. And this is not a politics show, so so you know we won't take a we won't take a stand there. But I think even if Clinton had won, there'd be a lot of a lot of hand wringing right now to figure out. You know what? What? What happened? Um, I did not put this link in 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 the show notes, but for those of you that have listened in the past, know that I've referred to Nate Silver's uh, data blog five thirty eight, which is an excellent, excellent uh, data journalism site. Um, for those interested in sports, uh, they do as much sports coverage there as they do politics and economics coverage. But he posted an article earlier today that uh, is starting to dig through the exit polls and um, basically saying that, you know, the, the narrative of the election has been all about, you know, how did economics impact the election? And if you take a look a little more closely at the data, it's actually how did education impact the election? In a lot of cases, Counties where Obama won in 2012, Clinton was able to well surpass um, uh, his his uh, or his percentage of the vote in in more educated counties. Whereas in counties that were relatively economically affluent, but the educational levels were lower, Trump did much better than Obama or Romney in, in, in 2012. So, um, again, I, I don't mention that because that's the story. I mention that because there's a lot of analysis going on right now beyond, um, you know, uh, panic about Trump's administration or thankfulness that Clinton had lost or any of the any of the various political views. What I want to talk about tonight, though, is an article, and they're listed a little out of order in in the uh, show notes, but there's a pretty fascinating article that made its way around uh, two weeks ago. It was actually from September. It's called Please Stop Sharing Links to These Sites, and it goes to a um, uh, actually a faith blog um, where I believe that the author kind of is a lean left um, uh, a Christian blogger who says that that if if the left wants to kind of stop the echo chamber, which um, he's associating with, uh, you know, poor coverage, and, and we'll get into the fake news aspect of this in a moment, then you should stop sharing um, articles um, uh, from the following sites. And he makes a list of about uh, 20 sites. Uh, Occupy Democrats, Bipartisan Report, Addicting Info, Liberal America, News Low, uh, Daily News Bin, Being Liberal, the other 98%, which he says are in effect uh, clickbait sites that purport to be news or news-ish sites. And um, the, the gentleman that wrote that particular blog post, um, his name is Ed Brayton, um, uh, took some flack for that post back in September when he first published it, and he subsequently written uh, additionally about this topic, but um, from there, that inspired um, other articles that were very similar, including a really excellent, um, uh, right now it's a Google Doc that's going to eventually be a website. Uh, There's a professor of communications, um, and I'm trying to make sure I get the right citation. She is a professor of communications at Total. It's all right. You can come back and get to it in a minute. Yeah, she that uh, assistant professor of communication and media, and that she started this website as a resource for her students, but was listing both left right left wing and right wing websites that she said were at best misleading, um, if not false or you know awfully clickbaity, right? And we're not talking about the sublimely ridiculous like the Onion, right? I mean, there has been a number of instances in the past, well, since the Onion's been around, social media is interacted with it where people, you know, share things uh, from the Onion as a uh, believing that it's real. Well, the Onion's pretty well known um, for being a a, a, uh, a satirical news site, but we're talking about the dozens, if not hundreds, of websites that um, you really lack in in uh, any newsworthiness, and instead take a little bit of truth and explode it into something quite different. And there is an increasing amount of um, claims and fodder that not only do it did adults do a disservice to this election by sharing reading in some cases surrounding themselves around sites that don't have anything to do with with reality you take a little bit of information and put a bunch of cruft around it 
but that it, it also diminished the opportunity to read real news about either candidate and, and let alone what this might have done to Senate and House races, gubernatorial races, legislative races, county dog catcher races, right? And um, and, and just today, um, and I know I'm kind of rambling on here, just today, to put kind of a little extra sting on it, um, the good people um, at The Verge um, started uh, kind of calling out to say that students can't tell the difference between real news and what people are calling fake news, which is a lot of websites. I say, uh, you know, I can't help thinking back to 20 years ago when the Internet started becoming a real reality in homes and in classrooms. Um, and we, we had students going online and accessing the wild trove of information. And, you know, I would say librarians led the, the caution train to say that, you know, it's great that these information sources are available, but we need to be teaching kids how to be proactive in the way they're analyzing and utilizing sources from non-traditional means. And so here we are in 2016 with somewhat clear evidence that you know, people's views, uh, you know, whether it agrees with your politics or not, are being impacted by sites that really aren't news at all. So I guess first I'd start with, Wes, this question to you. Um, I know obviously you are uh, quite active in social media. Do you feel like that you saw an uptick or a significant amount of these kind of fake news sites surrounding your social media presence? I, I definitely think so. Um, last week, Jen Carey was on uh, with me, and she had written a post, and I had written a post uh, really, really similar along along these lines. Uh, hers was called How to Be Digitally Literate in an Era of Fake News from October 15th. Mine was Digital Literacy Tips, Strategies for Online Fact-Checking on September 28th. And both of us uh, have found ourselves, and maybe you have too, Jason, in the role of of, of Googling something and, and putting the link to the Snopes article and, yep. you know, trying to help educate, in some cases, members of my family. Uh, other cases, you know, one of my favorite high school teachers from uh, from from back in the day. And, um, you know, the, art, the article that I wrote, I, it, the one that I put this, it wasn't a political one that I was pointing out. It had to do with like this large gourd which was supposedly the seed was buried for 4000 years and then they you know resurrected it and they're 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 growing it again and what was what was cool about that is that in Facebook actually showed a related article which debunked it and clarified it i mean there was some truth to that article but you know it, it was one that had been shared i there was there was a huge uptick in links being shared um you know the emo, the the emotional emotionally charged nature of of the political sharing which you know still continues right now um i definitely think so how about how about you i mean did you see that in your feed i i did and and obviously you know people tend to surround themselves with like-minded folks you know i would not say that my my facebook feed is a um you know a a, a marketplace of ideas where people are are challenging one another to the great debates at the time and if anything um, you know, I do think a lot of people unfriended a lot of folks during this political season, and even that was was a, a challenging issue. I have a, a very very bright former student that's uh, uh, in the public administration field, and she called people out by saying that no, I won't unfriend you for political views I disagree with because I generally care what you want what you think, even if I disagree with you. And you know, I I, I think that that has very much impacted you know the world that we're in, and you know, we tend to talk. I'd say maybe wistfully about, um, you know, the the challenge of the media homogeny that has dominated the last 50 years of entertainment media, at least. But there is a real issue if mainstream news sources that are, are, are you know, acting as the fourth estate in the United States, right, they are the, the, the challenge, the accountability for government, if they're if you know they're going down in um, uh, viewership, and at the same time, you know news sources that are uh, not uh, not as well vetted or claiming to be news when they're not are going up. That's a real concerning trend that we have to um, you know we have to be really cautious about. And I, I don't think it would be that far from reality to find us or me 
uh, advocating on how great the, 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 the low bar is for publishing your views, publishing your, your thoughts, your creativity, your perspective, your point of view. That's all an amazing part of this. But that comes to the price that anyone can publish whatever they want to in a largely accountability-less way. Um, and, and, you know, so we, we educators, education, K-12 education, higher education, the onus is on us as, um, you know, teachers to, you know, push students to critically evaluate sources and, and, and not just like, you know, in a formal research context, like, you know, encourage people as part of the regular media diet that, you know, click. Click on sources, find out more, you know, challenge the ridiculous. Well, here's here's several different thoughts about the educational lens for this. First of all, I don't think that people are fully embracing and, and understanding their their role in not skimming the news, reading articles, you know, and ensuring that what they're sharing uh, is is credible and, um, you know, and, and is well sourced. There's there are a few people, relatively speaking today, fewer, you know, that have set up a blog and kind of have their own place to, to share their ideas. But tons of people are doing that on Facebook and, and also are doing it on Twitter and other kinds of social media. And so I really think that we have important obligations as educators to be using this as a teachable moment and to look at, at what we're doing in the curriculum, right? Because we have not traditionally had sharing and publishing outside the walls of the classroom as, a, as an important essential element or tenet of, let's say, an English curriculum or just a, a, a high school curriculum. But I think it is absolutely vital, and we need to also situate this in conversations about digital citizenship. This last week, we had a mini retreat, one uh, Tuesday morning, actually, of last week, and, and we had Matt Scully, who is with Province Day School in Raleigh, North Carolina, video conference in. They have a wonderful framework that I put in the show notes last week for digital citizenship, where they have you know seven different things that they're going to try and help students across grade levels from you know primary age, elementary, all all the way up to 12th grade, and there are, are lesson ideas and many lessons in these things. But I really think that appropriate sharing and encouraging, number one, I mean, of course, education, like you said, that silver article, I mean, I think we got to be optimistic and to not lose heart in, in my own mind. I'm, I'm having to think about the long view, you know, because I really think it's going to be a challenging struggle on a, on multiple fronts. I mean, look at Europe and Brexit. I mean, there are things happening globally that are, it's not just a United States thing in terms of what people are voting for and backlash and, and the pendulum swinging, but education is, is such a bright shining star. And, and so that that article from Silver is very positive, saying, "Look, if you know, we need." I, I haven't read the whole article, but I, but that that thesis that people perhaps are going to make some, it's going to be better for democracy when people are more informed and when they have higher levels of education, and so I think we've got important roles to play in this today, and part of that is finding moderated places where we can help students safely share outside the bounds of the classroom, and so this is this passion of, of my wife and I talking about inside and outside sharing that we need to find places to share outside the password, outside the, the Google Classroom or the Canvas or, you know, whatever that LMS, that learning management system is. Um, we need to be sharing outside and talking about comments and, and then and talking about the responsibility that comes with with sharing a link and because it, it's not a, it's not just affecting the kids you know we had some um, pretty well-known radio hosts I think during the lead up to the election sharing some articles that were were clickbait I saw you put the article I'd, I'd read that about Bernie Sanders could replace President Trump with little known yep. loophole and you know that was the example of clickbait because you might have clicked yep. that going oh my gosh what is that you know and he's quickly saying no this isn't true but um, I think that we are we're on a journey to fully or more fully realize this positive potential of social media and empowering voices to be a very constructive force for democracy and for representative government. Uh, we're seeing the dark sides of it. But again, I'd remind everyone these tools are powerful. And what amplifies a lot of times the most in the media are the negative outliers. And so I know that I was better informed for this election than I ever have been before. Kudos to the Oklahoma Election Board. And maybe I've been able to do this every year and just didn't know it. But, you know, via Twitter, their website, I saw my ballot. I saw every candidate. Uh, I was able on, on a couple races like 
county sheriff and, and you know the, the judges we just we just vote whether to retain or not so pretty much right. every judge just stays but you know maybe people aren't hearing about that but i west fryer felt better informed going to the ballot box uh you know with the local races and that is really important too right we have so much focus on on national politics and it is a big deal but what happens locally is important and folks being informed uh locally is important as well so I don't know. Do you think there's any role for any of this conversation in, in the online space with what you all do with virtual school or or that, you know, that that whole, just the idea of, I guess, a high school curriculum? I mean, should this be fitting in somewhere in your mind, Jason? How would how would you put that in? I do. And one of the things that I, I do think of quite a lot about in regards to um, uh, my program is that, you know, we face a lot of perceptions that online learning is better or worse or easier or harder because it's online. And, and I think that there is a lot of, of pretty logical um, arguments to suggest that, that none of that is none of that is really true, right? Like we have to be more critical consumers than that. And that's a really important part, I think, of the, um, you know, of the, the kind of process we run through to, to in order to understand um, you know, particular pieces of the process. And, you know, that's, you know, I, I, I guess that if anything, I feel like that there is some tone that that um, that we don't need to teach that kind of stuff anymore. Like kids just get it in the same way that kids just get technology or kids are just productive on technology or kids are going to treat technology right. And I guess there's, in my mind, all the evidence in the world that's not the case. And you know, the specific articles that call out their students don't understand the difference between clickbait and real, that's all an important part of this process, right? Like I think that's a uh, something we have to be extra cautious about and be very uh, uh, uh you know, very uh, vigilant about because, you know, we, we risk making mistakes if we're not, if we're not careful with that process. And so, you know, I would say that uh, there is a lot of applicability here, but we just be precautious that we take the lessons, um, you know, uh, take the lessons on and, and learn something from them. And I want to be very clear. I don't think that this is like, if, if, if Clinton had won, we still need to have this conversation, right? And that's where I think that, that it's interesting watching people respond to this. This is not about President Trump um, or President-elect Trump. This is about, like, the, the news cycle in our our election. Um, it, it, it was dominated by, you know, suboptimal um, news sources, right? Like, it, it wasn't good um, that we, uh, you know, weren't, proactive in in helping people understand news. Uh, there's uh, additional criticisms of the logarithm that um, that uh, uh, Facebook has been using. Uh, Zuckerberg has taken a lot of um, criticism um, here with with the um, um, I'm, I'm having problems speaking the words. Uh, uh, Zuckerberg's taken a lot of criticism because the, the logarithm of Facebook tends to give you other stuff that's like the stuff you've already liked, mm -hmm. right? And so it kind of turns itself into an echo chamber. Um, again, I don't know how you fix that and still keep the, you know, uh, Facebook relevant to you, right? Like, obviously, you want to see stuff like you've already liked. But that's all something that we have to, you know, be really critical about and think about. You know, if we're trusting Facebook increasingly for our news, which we are, right, that's awesome. But we're going to have to take on a, a role of thinking, are we challenging ourselves enough? How are we thinking about um, you know, those particular pieces? And so that's a piece that I, I'm concerned about as well. Couple things on a technical note. Shout out to Dave Cormier, who's joining from uh, Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island. Very cool. Uh, and I know that because we do have a live chat on the YouTube page. Um, I do not know this person, but maybe you do. do. A Backen? Um, I'm not sure how to say her name. She is from Montana. So, of course, you'd know her, Jason. You're from Montana. Uh, she's having trouble seeing the video. So if you are just hearing us but not seeing the video, uh, you might go ahead and try a different browser. Um, we did have, I had some difficulty bandwidth wise, uh, last, last session. Actually, I had to do more editing of the show. Um, so hopefully those, uh, those blues are behind us, but, um, thank you guys for joining us and feel free if you are in the chat to, uh, you know, drop in your own comments and, and your own questions. So, uh, Dave says you could have friends who are open minded and simply don't take sides on an issue. Uh, you know, and that, that's true. And gosh, I, 
I think that we really, we have important work to do in this area, right? We are the first generation uh, to be globally connected in the way that we are now. You know, this Wednesday night, or we're on Tuesday night, you know, usually we're on Wednesday nights, this weekly show, you know, being able to get together with Jason and, and kick around ideas and, and be live on, uh, and then share this. And I, Jason, I had uh, a shout out from uh, a, a technology integrator in Kuala Lumpur um, this last week. Actually, I guess that was from my, my, my regular podcast. You know, I, we've said we've had somebody from Tasmania. I mean, it's crazy. It is really crazy to be able to, to be engaged in this kind of conversation. But what we're seeing happening in the aggregate politically, you know, isn't, isn't this wonderful, hey, isn't this great? We're talking about these educational issues. You know, it's really the dominance of, of these outlier views and, and fake news. And, you know, it's, <laughs> it's probably a lot like if we did the, the video interview on the street about what a fifth grader knows. You know, if you just ask, uh, you know, some really specific questions about, you know, who is our Secretary of State? You know, what is the Paris Peace Accord? I mean, there's different. If you took, for instance, um, you know, debate topics for, for a high school or, or college uh, extemporaneous uh, um, topics, you know, the if you ask the regular person on the street, they're probably going to be kind of challenged uh, to, yeah. to uh, you know, it, be very informed talking about those. And so we have people who, I mean, I don't know, this is democracy and, and, and representative government in a different way. So I think that, that companies do have important roles to play. I'm glad to see Facebook and Twitter uh, stepping up. And I saw that you had, I think, put an art, article link in there, Jason, about uh, Twitter. Twitter's long-due uh, anti-harassment tools might finally make a difference. Um, but I don't know. There's also, you know, this idea of censorship and there, there's, there's such ugliness that we've seen. Um, so on, from, to take again an educational lens, you know, part of our role and, and important opportunity that we have in schools is to use these technology tools as positive amplifiers of great learning and of great things. Because if we simply allow members of our community to just hear the negative of social media and, and the ways in which it's being, you know, perhaps used poorly, um, I, th I think that, you know, I live in a different world, so to speak, from a, from a lot of people because of the constructive ways that I'm using Twitter on an almost daily or, or usually daily basis to, to learn and to interact. And that's just not the reality of a lot of people. So I think that we've got opportunities in education to highlight the, the real positive aspects and to talk about, you know, how this has a real important place in the classroom. And I don't know who's, whose course it fits into, but... Uh, it's something that we shouldn't we shouldn't ignore any any more than we should you know have when, when Columbine happened in two thousand one we you know schools just didn't put their head in the sand and say well we're not going to worry about that you know we're not going to worry about a lockdown drill you know they realized hey security is is something that perhaps we haven't taken as seriously as we need to and, and we need to be doing things about it. So. Right. Well, and then I would add, add a, a last piece of this that we really do have an obligation um, to um, to our students to build in media literacy into our curriculum, and, and this has been a, a mantra of, of of schools for twenty five years. This is nothing new, but uh, the bottom line is is that we. Um, in the same way that we are just not pushing out one line of information, we're trying to build scholars and thinkers amongst our society as we're practicing democracy. We also have to be very proactive about um, you know, teaching students about sourcing and, and understanding where you get information from. And it's not always wrong to have a partisan point of view uh, informing your, your pieces. Like even the list that I shared tonight from uh, the Pathos blog is that um, – uh, the bottom line is, is that I go to some of those sites because I want to hear something that I want to hear. I want to be outraged about this, this or that. But in the end, you have to take multiple sites together and utilize those as your as your piece. And in fact, that uh, the, the uh, article I shared from the, the communication professor said that it's all about utilizing a variety of sources, including alternative news sources with different political perspectives to understand those pieces. And I'd add one last thing. Um, Melissa's uh, Zimdar is the professor that created that that document I shared. Is currently working on a website that is uh, you know kind of pointing out clickbaity, you know, fake news, spammy news kind of websites. And um, she's uh, apparently has found a I guess I don't know the plural of librarians. Is it a horde of librarians? Is it a is it a gaggle of librarians? Whatever, is a mass of librarians to join her in doing exactly that. Which, if you need any advertisement of why you know the librarian is a useful um, uh, a 
profession in the 21st century, there it is, right? Like we need a way to help divide up the sources, but that's, it's an important part of what's going on. And, and I think that schools uh, very much have to be at the forefront of these discussions. Absolutely. Well, um, I, uh, Peggy, Peggy George is, is tuning in tonight and she was saying she was having trouble with the chat. So I've just, Peggy, I just direct messaged you, uh, a link to the chat. If you are watching our live stream over on the right side of the window, uh, when you are viewing in YouTube, um, there should be a live chat window and there's a little option there that, that you should be able to click to take it out and, and pop it out. Um, I would like to take us down to, uh, this, uh, no turning back the third wave artificial intelligence section of our notes. And the shout out I want to give first off is to, well, I think, did, did you tell me about the motherboard podcast or did I learn about that from you, Jason, or was that somewhere else? That's somewhere else. Okay. Well, so that I've, I've somehow found out about motherboard and they had a, a really nice show that uh, was talking about, um, you know, different prognostications and, and people thinking about how, how uh, a Trump, administration was going to affect things but the best the best re- reference that they had was to this video by the council on foreign relations from november 14th and it is a panel discussion with four different i think all professors robots and the future of jobs the economic impact of artificial intelligence and we have been talking probably every show about artificial intelligence uh jason had an awesome demo by the way if you want to go back to episode i guess this is 30 so that'd be episode 28 where he demonstrated his Google Home, uh, and you'll have to tell us a little update about how that's going, Jason, because I'm I'm thinking myself about that after seeing that demo. Um, we're we're in an incredible era of accelerated change, and it is it's exponential. It is not linear. Uh, two of the uh, well, the main statistic that they they said from that. A panel was that 45% of job activities just across the board today could be automated with the kinds of robotics and the artificial and then the the kinds of algorithms and that may or may not be AI that's really automation but the impact that that can have you know on the workforce and this was the first time that I have heard and and they said this I think in the motherboard podcast you know very pro capitalist uh, folks talking about income and the possibility to have a fundamental shift in in terms of the way we, we think about the Protestant work ethic and this idea that you know you're not going to get to live on the dole you gotta you gotta be working to to earn your way uh to think about a universal basic income and the other th- article and I have I haven't gotten through this but foreign relations which at one point I one point I dreamed about writing this great article on foreign relations that everyone would read. Uh, but this is foreign relations from December 2015. It's called the Fourth Industrial Revolution what it means and how to respond. And the author is contending that, you know, we are, we are in a, an absolute transformative era that is going to affect governance and what we're talking about with politics and, and democracy and representative government. It's going to be affecting the labor force. It's going to be affecting, you know, economics. And, and, the, and a big driver of this is AI. And one of the, uh, per, one of the, the uh, panelists in, in the uh, Council on Foreign Relations uh, video panel, you know, said that increasingly every profession is going to have some kind of, uh, of coding, some kind of computation, uh, that, that being uh, aware of the ways to use data and the ways to, you know, bring computers to bear in solving problems and in gathering information. These are important critical skills. So this is the rah rah stem wagon or bandwagon, you know, that we've heard of before. But I think what I have a greater sense of today, especially after reading these articles, is just the pace of change. I have heard Ian Jukes and Al November and people stand up and talk about this for a long, long time. Uh, about Moore's law and the acceleration. But, you know, we heard Trump, for instance, promising to bring back coal jobs. You know, that is probably not going to happen. Um, the third wave is the reference to Alvin Toffler's book where he talks about the transition to a, a services-based information economy, you know, post-industrial economy. And, you know, there's been some articles. There's an Apple Insider article from November 17th uh, Apple exploring the possibility of moving iPhone manufacturing to the United States. I heard an NPR about this as well. 
you know, we simply don't have the manufacturing capacity. If we tried to, I think what Foxconn said is it'd be about twice as expensive for Apple. So that's probably not going to happen. But but what China has, and I think this is true in India as well and in places, is a, is a vast infrastructure to be able to produce these kinds of materials in mass. And there's rare earth metals that, you know, are available in China that, that play into the whole thing as well. So I don't know. I... I think that we've got this reactionary again pendulum swinging swinging back and forth, and uh, we we have not had the, the voices of reason. Um, I mean, I don't know. Perhaps some people would argue that, that that Hillary was trying to do that to an extent, but you know, certainly I think when Trump promises things like I'm going to bring back coal jobs uh, and I'm going to build a wall, I mean, I I do hope and and agree with those that we need to be looking at at the income gaps and the ways in which. You know, the wealthiest have continued to get wealthier and 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 uh, economic prospects are just not as not as high for a large percentage of people. And that's not just in the United States. Uh, but what what do you think about all this, Jason? And are you had, had you heard of this foreign relations article, the fourth industrial revolution? I've not heard that specific article, but I can tell you that's been another conversation that's been ongoing amongst my social media uh, connections is that the understanding that th- that it's not as simple as bringing coal back, nor is it simple as bringing manufacturing back, because it's it's incredibly complex. Um, it's not that we haven't lost jobs to other countries and the globalization movement. It's that we've lost jobs to other countries and globalization and the mechanization of manufacturing. And we would, even if we could bring back all manufacturing back to the United States, we'd still be very short of the height of manufacturing jobs in the 60s, 70s, and 80s because most of those jobs are now done by machines. And we have to come to a, a reality at some point. I'm not sure if it's in our lifetimes or not, but we have to come to a reality that the the the, the machine revolution and and I you know there's all sorts of rabbit holes we can go down here to talk about the merits of this uh, the danger of this um, you know someone might drop the word Skynet at some point right like it's really easy to get, get go down rabbit holes but the reality is in 2016 the the, the labor intensive jobs have disappeared. And, uh, you know, even when Apple brought back a factory to the United States, they were making the, the, the trash can Mac pros in a factory in Texas. The, the actual, you know, physical people that were in those manufacturing jobs was well below what, uh, you know, previously 10, 20 years ago, a computer factory would have maintained. A small number of people are, are constructing these, uh, uh, because factories have changed and we can't, we can't un-Pandora box this, right? Like we've opened it. It's heading in that direction. Businesses, um, those that want to buy consumer goods, nobody wants to undo this if you look at the reality of the situation. So what is it? Well, it could be a guaranteed basic minimum income. That's one strategy. It could be that we have to look at those industries that are not replaced by computers. I'm looking at you, educators and teachers, and say maybe we need to quadruple the number of teachers in the United States and lower class sizes and you know be true to the promise of, of, of special education in the United States to give uh, students more personalized attention. Computers can help in those places, but in the end, it just may be that a good percentage of, of our um, you know, learned content people don't end up um, uh, you know, working in manufacturing jobs. They're helping out or being part of schools or p- public art or music or you know, yada, 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 yada. J- Jason, can you move to Oklahoma and run uh, for political office with that campaign slogan? Because <laughs> – we need some folks to be advocating in that in that game. Yep. Well, and, you know, one good example of this, one of the, the most prolific um, jobs in the United States right now over the last 15, 20 years has been truck driving, right? That is on mechanization's top 10 list of replacement, right? Like we could talk to Torbul in the face about Google, you know, turning Uber cars into driverless cars where a lot of the energy is around that is truck driving. It's a, a very labor-intensive job. It, it has safety issues. The drivers are put through really, really, really tough positions, and people are looking to mechanize that. That means, 
you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of truck drivers could be out of work in the next 15 years. Well, you know, what do we do? Um, the most common job in Oklahoma and 20, 28 other states, according to Pew Research in 2014. That's not a small number of folks. There you go. And so what do we what do we do? Right. And um, that's what's complex about this debate. So I got to tell a quick debate story because you mentioning labor reminds me, uh, you know, I, I did do speech and debate for four years in college, but only one year in high school. And our topic in 87, 88 was political stability in Latin America. And so shout out to my debate partner, Paul Pearl, who did the lion's share of research, full disclosure and and case writing at that point. Uh, we ran a case where we were going to do technology transfer of labor intensive technologies to Latin America because, you know, the, the argument would be technology transfer is going to, you know, lead to, you know, um, you know, more losses of jobs. And, but this was going to be labor intensive. But, you know, one of the best arguments that people would run against this was, well, what is that? You know, give us a specific example. So we had the, the evidence or the cards to, to be able to say this was good, but I don't know that we had a lot of the details as far as specifically, you know, here's, here's what this is going to be. And, um, you know, this, I don't know. I've, I've sometimes, I was, I don't know, thinking about that this week as we can go around heralding educational technology and the wonders of, of the new world. It's kind of like Tomorrowland and Disneyland. It's going to be so great. You know, we're, we, what some, what these articles and, and a lot of this discussion is suggesting is that we're headed towards a, a world of fewer jobs. However, that doesn't necessarily mean a bad thing. It may be where we actually, you know, have to have fewer people, uh, working, you know, for a, for a wage and may, you know, as you just mentioned, I think you, maybe you can be an artist. Maybe you can stay at home with your children. Maybe you can, um, you know, work, work in the local parks and, and, and help beautify your, your community. I mean, it's, it's big. This is really big. I think this is every bit as big as Tom Friedman, the world is flat. I'm going to be curious to see what Friedman is about. I think the last thing he's, he, I think he did something on climate change where he was for National Geographic or somebody, but um, it, it'll be interesting to see what is written and what really helps point people's minds, you know, in this direction. Cause we've, we've had that, awareness about outsourcing and, and globalization and things like that. But I don't know that we, we have this awareness of, you know, is this going to happen? Is, 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 is AI going to displace and, and mechanization going to displace tons and tons of people? If you look at a current video of Elon Musk at the uh, Gigafactory where they're producing all these batteries and, and look at Tesla or SpaceX, you know, the amount of robotics and mechanization that's happening there is stunning. And, um, it is a good, you know, United States manufacturing success. Yay, SpaceX. You know, we're not relying on, on Russia uh, anymore. We're going to be able to have our own launch capacity and, and all of that. But we're also not employing millions of people to do that. And I, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm continuing to grapple with it. And, and I think I committed to my wife uh, this week. I said, I'm going to read this, this book that I got that's about that universal basic income. Because I... I sense in some of the articles that I'm reading, and I'm starting to hear that, and, I, and I'm just more aware of it, I guess, because I've heard it. I think that is prescient of the future. I think we're going to hear more and more discussions about it. What I hope we don't have is a really difficult time where there's even more people displaced and without work and angry, you know, and then voting for other people who are saying yes, and then, you know, let's do rash things like, you know, put huge tariffs on everything so that we throw our economy into a into a huge recession. And so I think we're just really in a, in a state of waiting to see what's going to happen. Cause nobody knows. Yep. Absolutely. And you know, and these are issues that, and I, I can't stress this enough. These issues existed no matter who won the presidential election, right? Like, uh, you could argue, and I think the statistics are, are coming up a little, um, a little mixed on, you know, why did Trump win? Why did Clinton lose? Yada, 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 yada. But the bottom line is, is that the, the question of what do we do with manufacturing and resource extraction jobs in an era where both of those uh, industries are in, in, in a lot of ways naturally uh, uh, moving away from providing uh, labor riches, then what do we do? And so I guess if, if you're looking for um, the bottom line is that we, we need to deal with these issues no matter what your politics are. Uh, would you say a few words about the um, 
the article that you put in for Trump's FCC transition team may spell the end of net neutrality. I'm going to jump in, but there's a guy here who's supposed to fix our heater and he's coming late and he just called. So I'm going to be right back. Absolutely. Um, April Glasser reports in yesterday's uh, Recode that uh, Trump has named two individuals, um, Jeff uh, Ishlinman and Mark Jamison, that are both um, uh, fierce opponents of, of net neutrality rules uh, that are um, uh, kind of dominating the Internet uh, or, or protection of, and regulation of the Internet right now. For those of you unaware of net neutrality, net neutrality is the notion that um, – all your packets, right? By the packets, I mean chunks of data information are treated precisely the same um, on the network. So if you're going to CNN.com, it gets the same attention as uh, BillyJoeBob.com, or let's use a, a, a completely worthless website, Knifer.com, right? Like no matter what, where your 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 internet is or where your website is hosted, it gets the same access to speed. Um, as does any other website. And there have been some people who have proposed, including a lot of telecom uh, properties, uh, content providers, that we should be able to prioritize, let's say, Netflix content uh, to make it faster over the network and then privilege people by offering uh, 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 economic benefits uh, to providers for doing so. Uh, traditional advocates for the Internet are completely against um, the the notion of, of of bending or or evolving our net neutrality rules and uh, for Trump to put a couple of, of folks in his transition team that are anti net neutrality certainly does call into question whether or not net neutrality will survive uh, even a, a single term of the Trump administration. So uh, Wes, I'm assuming you and I are on a similar opinion that net neutrality is pretty important. Oh my gosh, yes. Um, you know, I read Laura, uh, Larry Lessig's book, The Future of Ideas. A number of years ago, and uh, that and, and some other readings really helped me get a better picture on the basics of the Internet, how it works, you know, why uh, being agnostic as these routers look at packets is so important. And in addition to perhaps Trump's transition team, and these FCC folks being a threat to the Internet, you know, the surveillance state actually poses some threats because as governments have become more aware of the amount of monitoring that the United States government has done, and, you know, we've we've had I mean, there so there there's countries in Europe, I think, that have started to take a look at things saying, oh, no, you're going to have to serve have a server here, you know, in, in our country. And there, there are things that can threaten the real foundation of the Internet. So hopefully we're not going to see anybody, you know, pass anything that's going to going to break it, um, because I think. You know, this will sound a little bit like Star Trek. Uh, my wife is much more of a Trekkie than I am. But in, in terms of the overall evolution and maturity of our, our planet and our, our global species, you know, being globally connected in the way that we are today, um, is, is a huge, huge important step. And so, uh, if we, if we see some steps backward on net neutrality, hopefully we're not going to see something that cripples the internet and, for instance, you know, stops you or I from being able to put up our, you know, virtual, virtual space and, and having people have, have open access to it. I mean, certainly in China, there's when I, the times I've been over there, I mean, I used to use PB wiki back in the day and, um, oh gosh, I don't even remember the name of the group, but there's a, there's a group that is really, uh, on the, on the, the hit list or the enemy list of the Chinese, you know, communist government. And they had some kind of a big, big PB wiki site. And so anyway, any content you had there was going to be blocked and you had to, you know, put it on PB works or, you know, put it, or it was a uh, wiki spaces, I guess. PB wiki became. Anyway, we still have filtering issues and content issues, but I, um, you know, I think what I'll, I'll do a shout out right now to below in my geeks of the week. I put a little small link called advocacy advice. And I, I decided to go ahead and start curating a few of these links which basically talk about if you're going to be advocating for political change, um, what are some important things in terms of technical tools, but also just in terms of ideas. And I, I really liked this article from the New York Times, The Right Way to Resist Trump. Um, it was written by an Italian who talked about how we need to focus on issues. You know, there are people that are protesting the election. Hey, guess what? Trump won, right? Hey, guess what? We have an electoral college. You want to change the electoral college? Okay. But, you know, it, uh, we, um, we need to focus on issues and we need to, um, we need to together. 
figure out how these social media tools and, and this connectivity that we have, you know, inter- nationally and internationally can really um, support the values that we have that are embodied in, in our founding documents and, you know, in the common values that we have about respecting each other and uh, having political freedoms and, you know, self-determination. Some things I would say are also embodied in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and some things that the United Nations does. So I think it's really an exciting, exciting time because this is very emergent and we have, it's happening so freaking fast. So, um, there, there's just then the, and there's huge important roles for us to play as educators as we look at not only our curriculum but also things like digital citizenship and how do these lessons not become oh it's digital citizenship week this week kids we're going to talk about this but something that we do on an ongoing regular basis these things get baked into the conversations that we have all the time because all the time you know we're researching ideas we're sharing things we're sharing it with you know our our classmates and and our teachers but we're also sharing it outside because we have a digital presence outside the class and part of what school needs to do is prepare us for the world outside of school and and that is we one of I won't say who it was but one of uh one of our younger daughters teachers gave an assignment uh, last week and part of it basically said you can't get any of this from the internet because it needs to be from the real world. <laughs> I wanted to write, hey, by the way, the internet's real, you right. know, and it's really shaping all kinds of conversation and communication and, you know, anyway, that's a little sidebar. Wow. Uh, <laughs> on that note, uh, let's see, what else... Um... I'm going to talk Apple real quick. Did you, uh... Yeah, let's go ahead. Uh, reviews are starting to come out for the uh, MacBook Pros. I, I, I don't think we've talked recently about this topic. Are you in the market for well, a new MacBook Pro? No, I'm, uh, for school, we're going to be refreshing computers. And, uh, again, for anybody who's listening the, uh, from, from my school, we have not made these decisions yet as far as what we're going to do, but we are looking at, you know, options in terms of, uh, the cost of, of a new the new MacBook Pro doesn't have any any uh, USB um, slots and it doesn't have any built-in video slots either. And one of the things I did learn from our Apple rep maybe week before last is that just like the pre-Retina uh, built-in DVD, um, you know, MacBook Pro was was kept on by Apple for years and years. Like we're talking four years after it was introduced. Um, they still are continuing to produce this older MacBook Pro. It is a Retina MacBook Pro, but it has built-in HDMI. It's got the FireWire ports. It's got the USBs. And so that particular model um, is the one that looks most attractive just because I don't, I don't think it's good for us to be handing a device to, to teachers right now and saying, hey, you got to get your, your, uh, your adapter or dongle out, you know, to, to plug in a flash drive uh, or to be able to, to plug in your projector. So... I am not in the immediate market for one, but we certainly are looking at that um, as far as the refresh for our teachers. Um, how about you? Are you going to be a Hackintosh? I put an article in here that said that uh, with Apple, um, why some Apple fans are considering a Hackintosh. I mean, I, I guess I can. I'll yeah. admit that on the record that I, I did, uh, you know, experiment with a little Dell Mini 10 a number of years ago and successfully ran ran mac os on it and right you know that was that was kind of cool but it also didn't change our lives you know we don't really do that anymore so i don't know you in the market for um, you you kind of are aren't you yeah i i considered updating sometime in 2017 i mean i the the touch bar is of no literally no interest of me right like i i there's nothing about that that's that encouraging however the 13 inch uh with retina that comes in the non-touch variety, which, by the way, is the the widely available version right now. Um, since the Touch Bar one is is just slowly rolling out, I might be in the market for that. A friend of mine um, that uh, is probably updating. Um, he's currently has a a first generation um, uh, 15 inch Retina with um, uh, a 15 inch Retina uh, a MacBook that is probably going to update, and I'll get his opinion on it first. Um, I don't know. Like, part of the problem with me is that I I am kind of a Mac snob, but I'm also fairly OS agnostic. Like tonight, I'm running off of a, a you know a seven year old laptop with Xbuntu Linux on it because I'm a nerd. So you know, like I, I I'm not the great market share. I I don't care as much about the ports. I don't care as much about um, 
uh, I don't need the, the, the strip bar thing on it. I, I think probably <laughs> I'm in the market, but I, I don't know. Well, I'll say this. I'm tuning in today with a, uh, a thin MacBook, which I guess I've had for maybe close to a year now, not quite. Uh, really love it. I did have to have Apple... Um, put a new logic board in it because when I took it to ISTE last year, for some reason it would just intermittently, you know, turn off the video signal. It wouldn't consen- consistently send, but that wasn't something to do with the model. That was that was a, something specific to to my laptop. Uh, so since I've had that replaced, I haven't had any problems with that. And it while it it doesn't have the full blown you know horses obviously of a of a pro. I love the footprint. I love the size. I carry this thing around all the time. Uh, and, you know, and at one point I was carrying an iPad around, but I, you know, what I need to do usually if somebody asks me to do something is, you know, go onto our network and look at something and, and adjust something or, you know, do something that I need a keyboard for. And so while I love my iPad and, and continue to use it, uh, my phone and this laptop are kind of, you know, welded to my hands most of, most of the day. So, I'd say don't don't discount the the other devices in Apple's lineup. I've been wondering if the Air was going to go the way of the Dodo, and it's still staying around. Um, but it, but it it definitely, as we talked about, I think a couple weeks ago, Apple's all in for USB-C, and um, they're they are prescient. I'm using that word several times. It's my Scrabble word for the show. Uh, they they are able to pretty well see the future in terms of what's coming with, you know, the end of the floppy, the end of the CD, DVD, um, and now the end of, of standard USB. So the other articles I put in about Apple were some conjecture by Apple Insider about airport, and they have reported that Apple has basically axed their Wi-Fi router division, and all the people that were working in that division are now working for other groups, and so that apparently signals the end of of Airport as a product. That's what they're they're saying. They they think Apple hadn't come out and said that, and then they offer a bunch of best alternative Wi-Fi routers for Mac users. So I definitely have on one of one of the top of my wish lists the. Uh, new Google routers, which are not shipping yet. They, they had some that were produced by some other folks, but <clears throat> I'm, I'm gonna be interested in that. And, and I really wanna get from you, Jason. It's been two weeks now with the Google Home, so what else? Uh, well, it, it doesn't have a ton of third party functionality yet because it, uh, integrations are, are upcoming. And where I, I have some hope here is that the Alexa, when it was introduced two years ago, uh, was pretty thin on integrations, and now it has hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of integrations. So, so far, it, it, that's not super great, but it, it is, uh, it's really easy to get information from it. Um, I've referred to it during dinner conversation with my wife. Um, it's really easy to get music and podcasts to it, and uh, uh, whether I would say I'd ask it questions 10, 15 times a day, and that's way more than I would have expected. It's way more than I use Google Now on my um on, on, on my, my cell phone. So I am, I'm very excited about the platform and I can't wait until it has further integration with apps. Okay. Well, we're getting close to the top of the hour. Do, uh, any other thing, uh, articles you want to talk about before, before geeks of the week? Um, no, although I do want to hear about, um, how did your TED talk go? I think it went pretty well. Uh, what I was most excited about was that Rachel's went real well. My uh, daughter gave her, her a presentation of tales from a mine, teenage Minecraft YouTuber, and so um, hers was uh, about eight minutes, and really, so there's so much there that was good, but the surveillance state went okay. Um, I wish I had have had a little more time to rehearse, and I had a little bit of difficulty with the um, with the slide advance, so some of my slides at the end I, I didn't end up getting to, and I perhaps told a little bit longer stories. I went with the Cheetos story of, uh, you know, being in the pantry on Saturday and, and having my phone tell me to stop binge eating because it had heard me snacking, and um, I enjoyed getting your feedback as well as Jen Carey's last week to, you know, really talk about the educational uh, aspect of this, of being informed and you know, thinking about it in three ways, the government side of surveillance, the corporate side, and then the individual side, and then the responsibilities that we have to keep our stuff updated, you know, to keep it patched. Um, and But then to also, what I didn't get to, to make a, a strong case of, I didn't even, I think, get to show my EFF slide, 
was to talk about supporting organizations that are going to be watchdogs for this kind of thing and to basically say that, you know, left to their own devices, the government bureaucracies which have brought us the Edward Snowden revelations are going to continue down that same path. And while there is a perhaps inevitability about this, because this is happening all over the world with governments that are seeing the power of not only social media, but surveillance technologies to, you know, enhance their police and their domestic intelligence uh, capabilities. I think that as an ostensibly free society, and we're not ostensibly, we are, I'm not that cynical, uh, relatively speaking, that we've got important responsibilities to um, support uh, wise regulation and, and to not just turn a blind eye to say, you know, uh, again, I'm not a criminal, I'm not a terrorist, so I don't care. They can do whatever right. they want. Yeah. So um, I uh, I did uh, publish a podcast uh, Sunday with the audio of that, and then they'll be they'll be publishing the video of them. So anyway, it was this was one of only 19 TEDx youth events nationwide in the United States, and so this Waller Middle School in Enid, Oklahoma. Kudos and shout out to them. And I'm going to write a a whole post about how awesome they are because what a fantastic thing for their students to be able to do all these aspects and because they live streamed on on youtube my, my mom watched me live on youtube uh but i mean being able to do that the stuff behind the scenes uh the kids that i was with you know one of them was giving another talk the other one gave a talk last year but she was playing her ukulele and talk you know doing an arts thing you know they integrated the arts in with um you know, having they had three sets and they showed a TED Talk video each time. And then this was the first time that they had outsiders. So they had three different speakers who weren't part of their community. So great experience and uh, excited to see that because the student voice side of that is so energizing. And uh, there were some really, really good talks that the kids gave. So I'm looking forward to those being on video and then being able to blog those and, and amplify those as well. Awesome. Great to hear. All right, well, tell us about your Geek of the Week. Oh, um, I am going to Europe at the end of December. Um, my wife and I will be traveling, uh, spending half of our time uh, in Paris and half of our time in London. I've never been to London. I have been to Paris, but never been to London. So very exciting to return to international travel um, after uh, uh, now, I guess, almost three years away. Um, and um, I am, you know, kind of obsessed uh, with, Technology, so I'm gonna try something different this time, which is that the last two times I traveled, I had an iPad with a with a 3G card in it, and this time I'm gonna see if I can get cell phones up and running for me and my wife. So, um, uh, buying a cheap cell phone for use in Europe is, you know, kind of a, a my my goal here. Um, to be able to show up, pop a SIM card in, and and uh, you know, be able to text back and forth and utilize maps and other technologies. Um, the the thing I wanted to share is that. At the same time that that's an interesting thing for me, um, cell phone subsidies have largely gone away in most of the major cell phone providers in the United States, including um, I'm a Verizon customer, and after hanging on to my subsidy for uh, many years, that is now gone um, because uh, I've renegotiated data and signing a new contract made my subsidy go away. So I'm looking for opportunities to not spend $1,000 on a new cell phone. And Amazon now offers, uh, they have actually three phones, only two are listed right now because there are, um, uh, the third one has been out of stock for some time, but now Amazon sells Android phones. In this case, the two that are available are Moto cell phones, high-end Moto cell phones at a vastly discounted rate, well below $200, the cheapest one being $100 that you can buy. It does have the Amazon ads on it, which uh, some people do not like, but uh, uh, you can now uh, buy great, you know, Amazon vetted uh, cell phones that work on all the major networks in the United States and then, you know, globally on the global GSM networks uh, by just slips, uh, slipping a SIM card in. So if you are in the market for a new cell phone and aren't getting what you want from your local AT&T, Verizon, Sprint, T-Mobile store, uh, know that the market is opening up to, you know, bringing your own devices and shopping around for the best um, you know, medium uh, price device available. So Amazon Prime phones, interesting concept. Awesome. I can't find the link, but there's actually a DIY phone thing that I heard about on uh, one of the podcasts, NPR, something like that. And um, man, I, yeah, I've, I think I'm probably going to step into the iPhone 7 here uh, in the not too distant future. But nice. may, I may look at the Google Pixel just to, that would really throw my kids for a loop. They, <laughs> they, 
I know how. Um, uh, my geek of the week is Google Quick Draw, and this is really cool. And this is an AI application. And so what you do is you go to this in your browser. Uh, obviously, it'd be better to do on an iPad or some kind of a, of a tablet or touch device. Uh, but they're going to give you a prompt to say dog or um, I don't know. Um, ice cream or whatever. And uh, as you draw, the Google AI algorithm is going to start guessing, you know, what it is that you're drawing. And it gives you about nine or 10 different things. And then, you know, you get a score as far as, uh, I guess, how, how well you did or, or whatever. But it's, it's this interesting thing where, again, Google's gathering information and data, and they're being able to identify what you're sketching. But I'm a huge advocate of sketchnoting, and I, it's one of these things I need to find and make more time to practice as well. And so, anyway, just check it out, and uh, you can tag that into the educational strategy, because if your students are going to take sketch notes uh, and use that as an instructional strategy, there's a good way they could be deepening their learning and making their notes more visual. So awesome. where can people find you on the interwebs, Jason? Well, I am the assistant director and curriculum director of the Montana Digital Academy, the fab- fabulous uh, state virtual school located on the University of Montana campuses in, in, at the University of Montana um, in Missoula, Montana. I am, uh, uh, you can find out more about my work there at montanadigitalacademy.org, and we're also members of the Virtual School Leadership Alliance because virtual state virtual schools get things done. I'm also the tech study administrator residence for the Northwest Council of Computer Education and blog at blog.nc.org. You can find me on the Twitters at Tech Savvy Teach. And what about you, Wes? So I am Wes Fryer, Director of Technology at Cassidy School, blogging at speedofcreativity.org, podcasting there every once in a while. have published a couple podcasts from this month on the Fuel for Educational Change Agents, which you can find at audio.speedofcreativity.org. Had a chance to go to a Google Summit a couple weeks ago, and then the TEDx uh, from this last Saturday. Um, I am W. Fryer on Twitter, and you have been listening to the EdTech Situation Room for November 22nd, 2016. Find all of our show notes and links at edtechsr.com slash links. You can check out our uh, YouTube channel, uh, EdTechSR, which you'll find linked from our website. We'd love for you to subscribe there, and that's a fast way to, to usually get the shows. But we also do a quick export as an MP3, a 32-kilobit, uh, lightweight, about you know 14 megs or so for an hour-long show. And you can uh, get that link as well on EdTechSR.com. Definitely follow us on Twitter. That's the main way to find out when we are live, and this is an irregular week because of the Thanksgiving holiday, but normally we are here on Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Central, or sorry, at 9 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Mountain, or whatever that happens to extrapolate to in your time zone and place. So please fill out our uh, survey that we have at the top of our show notes. We would love to hear from you, find out where you're tuning in from. Uh, thanks very much for Dave Cormier from uh, tuning in from Prince Edward Island. That was very cool. Uh, I think Peggy George was checking us out and, and some others as well. So if you've got any topics that you'd like to see us uh, tackle or, uh, you know, any guests that you'd, you'd like us to invite, uh, this is a, a pretty open thing. I think, Jason, we do need a plan for our end-of-year show, which is really where we started with this the last two years. Uh, and so let's be doing some thinking about that. But that will be uh, over the Christmas break and uh, usually right before the new year, and it will be a reflection of the EdTech year in review. So, And I'll be joining from Paris, as a matter of fact. So that will be a international show. Awesome. Awesome. That is great. Well, hey, have a very happy Thanksgiving. Enjoy your turkey day and enjoy your time being disconnected as well. Great. Thanks, Wes.